Our reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for an amazing reading. Thank you. Shall we pray to start? Father, would you um, speak to us today, this morning, by your word, and teach us what it means to be part of your burning church. Morning, everyone. My name is Daniel Kim. I'm a vicar in training here in the city. I attend this church, and it's a real privilege to be speaking to you this morning. Today, I want to talk to you about the first day of the church and what it means for us to be part of the church today. Because some of us in this room right now might have a really good connection with the church. Others might be a bit complicated for various reasons. What is it? It's an institution, historic fact, an amorphous concept. And others might have a difficult relationship with the church for various, often very good reasons. And so today we are starting a new series on the book of Acts, which is pretty much the founding narrative of the church. It's the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, written by the same author, and it covers the first 30 years or so of the Christian movement from being a small sect in Jerusalem to becoming this transnational, multilingual movement that it is across the Roman Empire. And our reading today, Acts 2, comes from, uh, is, is the first day of the church, the day God sent his Holy Spirit, the day this all started. And this story teaches us what it means to be part of the church. And it's really important because almost every single nation in the entire world has a day when they celebrate their founding story. So if you're American, you have the 4th of July. If you're South Korean like me, you have the 15th of August, Independence Days. If you're British, I hear um, the 17th of February is National Crumpet Day. I think it's a pretty good contender. But also, the coronation and those kinds of events do kind of bring up some of these deep symbols about what it means to be a Brit. And these founding stories um, have encoded in them images, narratives, characters of what it means to be part of that people. 
And that's true for us as a church as well, because to, for us as human beings, to, to find our place in the world, to know our purpose in life, we not only have to understand who I am as an individual, but we have to locate the I in a we, who are we. And very often in the modern world, we tend to construct our identities internally and individually and kind of by our own choice. But the issue with that really is actually some of the most important parts of who we are as individuals are actually constructed relationally. So I am a son, I'm a husband, I'm a South Korean, I am a Londoner, we have fathers, we have mothers, we have friends, we have leaders in the room, all of these things, these really important parts of who we are is constructed in relation to an external thing. Uh, my parents, uh, my wife, my job, my, my, my nation, my city. And it's similar in Christian theology. And it, it is God who gives us our identity. God calls each one of us sons and daughters. God is the one who calls us forgiven, not condemned. And God adopts us into a new family and into a new citizenship. And that's called the church. So I really hope that as we get into this passage, the first day, ground zero, of what it, what, what, when the church began, I hope that we can learn a bit more about ourselves on, in a more communal basis. And I'm gonna draw out four really deep symbolic images from this passage here. Um, and these four are the wind, the fire, the tongues, and the wine. So let's jump in. If you have a Bible with you, please follow along. Verse one, when the day of Pentecost came, they, that's the first Christians, were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost was a great Jewish festival. It is one of three occasions in the entire year when all the Jewish people from across the entire Roman Empire would descend on Jerusalem to celebrate God as a big festival. Approximately about a million people would be passing through the city during this time. And essentially, it was a harvest festival. People would bring sheaves of grain, their first harvest, their first fruits, and then wave their sheaves of grain at the temple and give it as an offering to God to thank him for his good gift of provision. It was this day that God chose to start his church. Now, imagine this as we read from verse 2. At this point, there are 120 Christians in the entire world. That's about as many people as you can fit into a bus, or it's the first 10 rows of this church. That is the entire Christian population of the entire world, and you are one of them. And you're in this rammed city, in a cramped room, and you're praying and singing some first century worship songs maybe, and then suddenly you hear this sound like the blowing of a violent wind come from heaven. And it echoes around the whole house. And then you see these weird lights kind of appear around you, like fire, tongues of fire. And they kind of hover over the heads of people around you and over your own head. And it's kind of strange. And you then feel this deep sense of coming alive inside of you, being filled with some kind of power. This is a really weird collective visionary, mystical experience. And that's how the church was born. Now these aren't random images, wind and fire. They have deep, deep symbolic meaning in the Bible. So wind, for example, goes back to the very first chapters of the Bible. Wind is 
a symbol for God's breath. In fact, in Hebrew, the language the Bible's written in, uh, wind, spirit, and breath are the same word. So it is the wind, the breath, the spirit of God that fills humans and brings them to life. In Ezekiel 37, we have this image of a valley of dry bones. And it is the wind, the breath of God that brings, recreates, reanimates, reconstitutes dry bones into living beings. Similarly, fire. Fire is this deep symbolic image of God's divine presence and his divine power. You know, Moses encounters God in a burning bush. And when the Israelites are freed from slavery, they are led through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. And in literature and poetry, fire is always this symbol for energy and passion and life and purification and danger at times as well. It's dangerous fire, light. And often when people encounter God for the first time, um, fire is the first metaphor we grasp after. Have you, have you, have you, have you felt this before? Like a, you've heard people say, a burning in my heart or a fire in my belly or uh, John Wesley describes it as his heart feeling strangely warmed. It can be a raging fire, it can be a gentle fire, it can be this kind of hot water bottle, warm glow in your heart. It doesn't have to be this extroverted big thing, but it is this feeling of fire. And it's really important, both wind and fire, that we actually feel this as Christians and as a church. Um, you might hear some people sometimes say something like, you don't need to experience God. You just need to trust in the truth. And I really get it. I, I get where they're coming from. It's really important that we value truth above our own kind of emotional states. And it's really important that we can persevere when we lack the inner drive to persevere, to kind of stick at it. But on the other hand, in some ways, it's quite naive to think that we can live decades as Christians without feeling God's presence with us. It's important that we have the fire, the wind, the life, the passion in our hearts. You know, our hearts need to be soft, and that requires a bit of heat there, like metal. William Blake, the poet, um, once wrote a poem called Pentecost, when he wrote, unless the heart catches fire, God will not be loved. God wants his church to be alive, with God's wind. He wants his church to be burning with God's fire. But how do we do this? How do, how do we cultivate this living, burning fire within us? Well, I think our passage has a bit of clues to give us as well. Um, for something to catch fire, it has to be flammable, right? It needs to be, you know, dry and flammable and oily or whatever. And I'm struck that Pentecost happens when the community of Christians are gathered together and they've been worshiping and praying for a few time, for, for a few days before this. There was this run up. It's as if the community were gathered together and they were stacking up the kind of bonfire of their hearts with dry wood and petrol and kindling and waiting for God to light the spark to set it alight. God brings the fire, but we can bring the fuel. And so if you're here right now and you, and you want this wind, and you want this fire in your heart. Maybe God is calling you to devote more time, intentional time, to prayer and to worship and to kind of wait, to stack up your heart with kindling, because God will come in fire. 
And it might also mean you have to perhaps remove some things in your life that can dampen your heart. You know how wet wood can't really light very easily? It's the same with our hearts. If, if it's damp with distraction or busyness or habitual sin, it can be quite hard for God to light our hearts on fire. So we have these dual images of fire and wind. This is the first Christian experience of God. That's amazing. Pay attention to it. It's like God lights a fire and then blows on it. And then what happens is that it spreads. The disciples have experienced the fire and wind, and they start to speak in other tongues or languages. In the, in the Greek, they're the same word, tongues and languages, like mother tongue, and that, that kind of sense. Um, now, it's unclear in the book of Acts what this means is particularly. It could either mean uh, literally other languages, like German or Latin, or it could mean this incomprehensible heart cry uh, as a prayer to God, or it could mean both at the same time. Whatever the case, this is a strange thing that happens, and then it spills out onto the streets of Jerusalem, and then people are completely freaked out by it. In verse 6, we read, When the crowds heard this, they were utterly bewildered. And as the crowds listen, a miracle starts to happen amongst them. This is Pentecost. You have people from across the entire Eastern Mediterranean world in our reading, we had um, all these strange parts, that, like Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia. All these parts correspond generally to modern-day Italy, Greece, Iran, Syria, Turkey, the whole North African coast of the, of the, of the um, Mediterranean. It is a ginormous geographic region. Many languages, many cultures, and yet everyone understands the Christians in their own native tongue. It's as if God is reversing the Tower of Babel. At Babel, God scatters the people, gives them different languages, and ruins the project to kind of build a monument to, their, to, to, to themselves. And at Pentecost, what happens is the nations are gathered together again, and this time God unites the languages from all around the region to speak about the gospel. It's amazing. I was in the pub a few, a, few, a few months ago, and I met this guy, um, a good friend of mine now, and he is a really remarkable, amazing guy. And he's one of those guys who has a, um, a knack for languages. Do you know these people? Uh, I, know, I, oh, I know Italian and French and Latin or whatever. And, and this guy had at least 10 languages on, under his belt. He had French, Mandarin, and there's some crazy ones like uh, Armenian, Mongolian, Georgian, Russian, Slavic dialects. These are crazy. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool guy. And I said, oh, you know, I'm just a vicar in training. It's what I do. And then he says to me, oh, it's amazing, Dan. Um, I'm not a Christian, but I read the Bible. I listen to the Bible about an hour or two every single day. And I'm like, flip. <laughs> like, oh, I'm challenged. Like, I'm a vicar. And oh, man. And I, I was confused. Why is a non-Christian reading the Bible for an hour or two every single day? And um, so I asked him, hey, why do you do this? And then he said something extraordinary. He said, it really helps with my language learning because it's the only book I can reliably get in every language I want to learn. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, the Bible is by far the most translated Bible in the, book in the entire world. 
There are over 1,500 New Testament translations and almost 800 Old and New Testament translations together. That is insane. Uh, for context, Harry Potter has 85 translations. It's pretty good, but like it's one-tenth of the Bible. You know, if you've ever struggled with doubts about the Christian faith, like I have in the past, or if you've ever, or if you're exploring the faith right now, think about this for a moment. Um, one of the most compelling things for me about the Christian faith, about Jesus, is that no matter the time, the culture, the language, the geography, it seems to be the case that people experience the same Jesus in the same way. And somehow I can recognize that as a 21st century, 28-year-old London person. Like, they could be 2,000 miles away, 2,000 years away, and it's still the same Jesus who speaks. You know, my Korean grandfather, when he was a political prisoner in South Korea, he, um, he encountered Jesus for the first time in prison while reading the Bible. And when I spoke to him recently about it, I was just kind of struck by it. Oh, like, this is the same God, this is the same Jesus. We're a different generation, different time, and yet it's the same wind, the same fire, the same tongues. You know, in our passage, there's this um, really remarkable, strange image that connects speaking and fire. And it's this weird phrase called tongues of fire. And that word tongues is the same word as language, tongues and language. So in, in many ways, you could almost say the native language for Christians is a language of fire. A language that spreads like fire across borders, across boundaries, across nations, time and space. That's a powerful image, tongues of fire, languages of fire. An English medieval commentator uh, put this really beautifully, a guy called Bede, he said, the Holy Spirit appeared in fire and in tongues because all those whom God fills, he makes to burn and to speak, to burn because of him and to speak about him. God wants his church to be a speaking church. And, what, and they spoke about the wonders of God. In verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. So if you are here, and if you've experienced Jesus in your own life, if you've encountered him, you know the wonders of God in your life. Speak about them. Pray for opportunity to speak about them. Practice speaking about them. Write it down and practice it. I could tell you about the first time I encountered Christ. I could tell you about the first time I had an answered prayer. I could tell you about the train wreck of a job hunt I had post-uni and how God came through. Talk about them. There are people who want to listen to your tongues of fire. Our society doesn't need another cold and personal product. What it desperately desires is the fire and wind in their soul, and that can only happen when the people of God speak. Don't let the enemy or your own insecurity muzzle you. When you speak about God, you are speaking the language of fire, so let it spread. So we have winds, we have fire, we have tongues, and finally we have my favorite thing in the world. We've got, yeah, you got it. You got wine. Acts 2.13 might be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. 
the crowds are bewildered. And they have no idea what's going on. And some are amazed and perplexed. And then they say, they have had too much wine. I love this. The Christians experienced something so powerful and profound, yet they experienced it as something delightful and delicious and ecstatic. People thought they were drunk because of how full of joy and abandon they were. Do you know this delight? The Holy Spirit comes as power, but he comes as presence as well, God's immediate presence. And have you, have you ever thought about why God would come down to us humans? Why he became a human? Why he was born as a vulnerable baby? Why he, why he died an excruciating death on the cross? Why he spilled his blood and his tears? And why he would take on the entire sin of the world upon his own shoulders to die for us? Why did God do this? What did he get out of it? What, what reward did God get out of doing that? He got us. And that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? The reward of God's suffering was the delight of his people. And that, we should just never lose the wonder of that. We should delight in this day and night. Loving God never gets boring because it's so beautiful. Delight in God like wine. One poet writes, your love is sweeter than wine. And this, I think, could be the most important thing for us today because without delight, without the wine, we can be in danger of becoming activists for God as opposed to lovers of God. Power, energy, speaking the good things, but only wine can turn it into something delightful. God wants you more than anything else to love him in the morning, in the evening, as you lay your head down to love him. So this is the first Christian experience of God through the Holy Spirit. Wind, fire, tongues, and wine. This is the morning of day one of the church, the beginning of our story together as a people, the day the Holy Spirit came and filled the church. And he has been filling the church ever since. This 120 became 3,000 by the end of day one. That is a ridiculous growth hack. That's insane. This 3,000 became 33 million in the first 300 years, and today we're at around 2.1 billion Christians around the world in almost every nation. You can go to Antarctica and find sailors' graves with the cross of Christ. This is who we are. We are a part of this. This is the church on fire for God. And so the last thing I want to say really today is... Um, Let's get in this together. We are filled by the Spirit together. Find people. Join a small group. Start a prayer triplet. Fight for friendships. Dear God, it is hard to fight for friendships today, but fight for friendships deeply in this church. If you have a business dream or some kind of passion in your heart, find people in the church to partner with you and to help you and to pursue it. There is nothing more ineffective in the world and when Christians try to go at it alone. But there is nothing more powerful than when Christians gather together and passionately and thoughtfully pursue 
a vision. They can build cathedrals, they can abolish slavery, they can move mountains. That wasn't hyperbole. So God pours out his Holy Spirit on his church despite its mess, and he will keep pouring it out so that we all can live together to see the name of Christ lifted up in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen.